Section 11 of the Underground Railroad, Part 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 5, by William Still. Section 11. Portraits and Sketches. William H. Furness, D.D. Among the abolitionists of Pennsylvania, no man stands higher than Dr. Furness, and no anti-slavery minister enjoys more universal respect. For more than thirty years he bore faithful witness for the black man, in season and out of season, contending for his rights. When others deserted the cause, he stood firm. When associates in the ministry were silent, he spoke out. They defined their position by declaring themselves as much opposed to slavery as ever, but without sympathy for the abolitionists. He defined his by showing himself more opposed to slavery than ever, and fraternizing with the most hated and despised anti-slavery people. Dr. Furness came into the cause when it was in its infancy, and had few adherents. From that time till the day of its triumph he was one with it, sharing in all its trials and vicissitudes. In the operations of the Vigilance Committee he took the liveliest interest. Though not in form a member, he was one of its chief co-laborers. He brought it material aid continually, and was one of its main reliances for outside support. His quick sympathies were easily touched, and when touched were sure to prompt him to corresponding action. He would listen with moistened eyes to a tale of outrage, and go away saying never a word. But the story of wrong would work upon him, and through him upon others. His own feelings were communicated to his friends, and his friends would send gifts to the committee's treasury. A wider spread sympathy would manifest itself in the community, and the general interests of the cause would be visibly promoted. It was in the latter respect that of moral cooperation, that Dr. Furness's services were most valuable. After hearing a harrowing recital, whether he would or not, it became the burden of his next Sunday's sermon. Abundant proof of this may be found in his printed discourses. Take the following as an illustration. It is an extract from a sermon delivered on the 29th of May, 1854, a period when the slave oligarchy was at the height of its power, and was supported at the North by the most violent demonstrations of sympathy. The text was, Feed My Lambs. And now, brothers, sisters, children, give me your hearts. Listen with a will to what I have to say. As heaven is my witness, I would not utter one word, save for the dear love of Christ and of God and the salvation of your own souls. Does it require any violent effort of the mind to suppose Christ to address each one of us personally the same question that he put to Peter? Lovest thou me? And at the hearing of his brief command, Feed my lambs, so simple, so direct, so unqualified, are we prompted, like the teacher of the law, who, when Christ bade him love his neighbor as himself, asked, And who is my neighbor? And in the parable of the good Samaritan received an answer, that the Samaritans whom he despised, 
just as we despise the African, was his neighbor. Are we prompted in like manner to ask, who are the lambs of Christ? Who are his lambs? Behold that great multitude, more than three millions, of men and feeble women and children, wandering on our soil, no, not wandering, but chained down, not allowed to stir a step at their own free will, crushed and hunted, with all the power of one of the mightiest nations that the world has yet seen, wielded to keep them down in the depths of the deepest degradation into which human beings can be plunged. These, then, that we despise are our neighbors, the poor stricken lambs of Christ. To cast one thought towards them may well cause us to bow down our heads in the very dust with shame. No wonder that professing to love Christ and his religion we do not like to hear them spoken of, for so far from feeding the lambs of Christ, we are exciting the whole associated power of this land to keep them from being fed. Feed my lambs. We might feed them with fraternal sympathy, with hope, with freedom, the imperishable bread of heaven. We might lead them into green pastures and still waters, into the glorious liberty wherewith Christ died to make all men free the liberty of the children of God. We might secure to them the exercise of every sacred affection and faculty wherewith the Creator has endowed them. But we do none of these things. We suffer this great flock of the Lord Jesus to be treated as chattels bought and sold like beasts of burden, hunted and lacerated by dogs and wolves. I say we, we of these free northern communities, because it is by our allowance, signified as effectually by silence as by active cooperation, that such things are. They could continue so scarcely an hour, were not the whole moral, religious, and physical power of the North pledged to their support. Are we not in closest league and union with those who claim and use the right to buy and sell human beings, God's poor, the lambs of Christ, a union which we imagine brings us in as much silver and gold as compensates for the sacrifice of our humanity and manhood? Nay, are we not under a law to do the base work of bloodhounds, hunting the panting fugitives for freedom? I utter no word of denunciation. There is no need. For facts that have occurred only within the last week transcend all denunciation. Only a few hours ago, there was a man with his two sons, hurried back into the inhuman bondage from which they had just escaped. And that man, the brother, and those two sons, the nephews, of a colored clergyman of New York, of such eminence in the New School Presbyterian Church that he has received the honors of a European university, and has acted as moderator in one of the presbyteries of the same church, when held in the city where he resides, Almost at the very moment the poor fugitive, with his children, were dragged through our city, the general assembly of that very branch of the Presbyterian Church, now in session here, after discussing for days the validity of Roman Catholic baptism, threw out as inexpedient to be discussed the subject of that great wrong which was flinging back into the agony of slavery a brother of one of their own ordained ministers, 
and could not so much as breathe a word of condemnation against the false and cruel deed which has just been consummated at the capital of the nation when such facts are occurring in the midst of us we cannot be guiltless concerning the lambs of christ it is we we who make up the public opinion of the north we who consent that these free states shall be the hunting ground where these our poor brothers and sisters are the game it is we that withhold from them the bread of life the inalienable rights of man as we withhold these blessings so it is in our power to bestow them the sheep then that christ commands us as we love him to feed are those who are famishing for the lack of the food which it is in our power to supply and we can help to feed and relieve and liberate them by giving our hearty sympathy to the blessed cause of their emancipation to the abolition of the crying injustice with which they are treated by uttering our earnest protest against the increasing and flagrant outrages of the oppressor by withholding all aid and countenance from the work of oppression to say that dr furness in his pleadings for the slave was instant in season and out of season is not to exaggerate so palpably was this true that even some of his sympathizing friends intimated to him that his zeal carried him beyond proper bounds and that his discourses were needlessly reiterative to these friends who it is needless to say did not fully comprehend the breadth and bearing of the question he would reply as he did in the following extract from a sermon delivered soon after the one above quoted again and again i have had it said to me with apparently the most perfect simplicity why do you keep saying so much about the slaves do you imagine that there is one among your hearers who does not agree with you we all know that slavery is very wrong what is the use of harping upon this subject sunday after sunday we all feel about it just as you do feel about it just as i do very likely my friends it is very possible that you all feel as much and that many of you feel about it more than i do god knows that my regret always has been not that i feel so much but that i do not feel more would to heaven that neither you nor i could eat or sleep for pity pity for our poor downtrodden brothers and sisters but the thing to which i implore your attention now is not what we know and feel but the delusion which we are under in confounding knowing with doing in fancying that we are working to abolish slavery because we know that it is wrong this is what i would have you now to consider the deception that we practice on ourselves the dangerous error into which we fall when we pass off the knowledge of our duty for the performance of it these are two very distinct things if you know what is right happy are ye if you do it observe my friends what it is to which i am now entreating your consideration it is not the wrongs nor the rights of the oppressed upon which i am now discoursing it is our own personal exposure to a most serious mistake it is a danger which threatens our own souls to which i would that our eyes should be open and on the watch and here by the way 
let me say that one great reason why i refer as often as i do to that great topic of the day which in one shape or another is continually shaking the land and marking the age in which we live is not merely the righting of the wronged but the instruction the moral enlightenment the religious edification of our own hearts which this momentous topic affords to me this subject involves infinitely more than a mere question of humanity its political bearing is the very least and most superficial part of it scarcely worth noticing in comparison with its moral and religious relations once deterred by its outside political aspect i shunned it as many do still but the more it has pressed itself on my attention the more i have considered it the more and more manifest has it become to me that it is a subject full of light and of guidance of warning and inspiration for the individual soul it is the most powerful means of grace and salvation appointed in the providence of heaven for the present day and generation more religious than churches and sabbaths it is full of sermons it is a perfect gospel a whole bible of mind enlightening heart cleansing soul saving truth how much light has it thrown for me on the page of the new testament what a profound significance has it disclosed in the precepts and parables of jesus christ how do his words burst out with a new meaning how does it help us to appreciate his trials and the godlike spirit with which he bore them the dark winter of eighteen sixty broke gloomily over all abolitionists perhaps upon none did it press more heavily than upon the small band in philadelphia situated as that city is upon the very edge of slavery and socially bound as it was by ties of blood or affinity with the slaveholders of the south to all human foresight it would assuredly be the first theatre of bloodshed in the coming deadly struggle as dr furness said in his sermon on old john brown out of the grim cloud that hangs over the south a bolt has darted and blood has flowed and the place where the lightning struck is wild with fear the return stroke we all felt must soon follow and philadelphia we feared would be selected as the spot where slavery would make its first mortal onslaught and the abolitionists there the first victims dr furness had taken part in the public meeting held on the day of john brown's execution to offer prayers for the heroic soul that was then passing away and had gone with two or three others to the railroad station to receive the martyr's body when it was brought from the gallows by mr afterwards general tyndale and mr mckim and it was generally feared that he and his church would receive the brunt of slavery's first blow the air was thick with vague apprehension and rumor so much so that some of dr furness's devoted parishioners who followed his abolitionism but not his non-resistance came armed to church uncertain what an hour might bring forth or in what shape of mob violence or assassination the blow would fall few of dr furness's hearers will forget his sermon of december sixteenth eighteen sixty so full was it of prophetic warning and saddened by the thought of the fate which might be in store for him and his congregation 
It was printed in the evening bulletin, and made a deep impression on the public outside of his own church, and was reprinted in full in the Boston Atlas. But the trouble cannot be escaped. It must come. But we can put it off, by annihilating free speech, by forbidding the utterance of a word in the pulpit and by the press for the rights of man, by hurling back into the jaws of oppression the fugitive gasping for his sacred liberty, by recognizing the right of one man to buy and sell other men, by spreading the blasting curse of despotism over the whole soil of the nation, you may allay the brutal frenzy of a handful of southern slave-masters. You may win back the cotton states to cease from threatening you with secession, and to plant their feet upon your necks, and so evade the trouble that now menaces us. Then you may live on the few years that are left you, and perhaps, it is not certain, we may be permitted to make a little more money and die in our beds. But no, friends, I am mistaken. We cannot put the trouble off. Or, if we put it off in its present shape, only that it may take another and more terrible form. If, to get rid of the present alarm, we concede all that makes it worth while to live, and nothing less will avail, perhaps those who can deliberately make such a concession will not feel the degradation. But stripped of all honor and manhood, they may eat as heartily and sleep as soundly as ever. But the degradation is not the less, but the greater, for our unconsciousness of it. The trouble which we shall then bring upon ourselves is a trouble in comparison with which the loss of all things but honor is a glorious gain, and a violent death for right's sake on the scaffold or by the hands of a mob, peace and joy and victory. Since we are thus placed, and there is no alternative for us of the free states but to meet the trouble that is upon us, or by base concessions and compromises to bring upon ourselves a far greater trouble. In the name of God, let us let all things go, and cleave to the right. Prepared to confront the crisis like men, let us with all possible calmness endeavor to take the measure of the calamity that we dread. God knows I have no desire to make light of it. But I affirm that never since the world began was there a grander cause for which to speak, to suffer, and to die, than the cause of these free states as against that of the states now rushing upon secession. The great grievance of which they complain is nothing more nor less than this, that we endanger the right they claim to treat human beings as beasts of burden. And they maintain this monstrous claim by measures inhuman and barbarous, listening not to the voice of reason or humanity, but treating every man who goes amongst them, suspected of not favoring their cause, or of the remotest connection with others who do not favor it, with a most savage and fiendish cruelty. It is the conflict between barbarism and civilization, between liberty and the most horrible despotism that ever cursed this earth, in which we are called to take part. And all that is great and noble in the past, all the patriots and martyrs that have suffered on man's behalf, all the sacred instincts and hopes of the human soul, are on our side, and the welfare of untold generations of men. 
oh if god in his infinite bounty grants us the grace to appreciate the transcendent worth of the cause which is now at stake there is no trouble that can befall us no not the loss of property of idolized parents or children or life itself that we shall not count a blessed privilege to serve this dear cause of peace and liberty and love we have no need to grasp the sword or any instrument of violence and death but we must be ready without flinching to confront the utmost that men can do and amid all the uproar and violence of human passions still calmly to assert and to exercise our sacred and inalienable liberties let who will frown and forbid assured that no just and law of god abiding people will ever do otherwise than give us their sympathy and their aid death is the worst that can befall us if so be that we are faithful to the right it is a solemn and a fearful thing to die and mortality shrinks from facing that last great mystery but we must all die my friends and the dying hour is not far distant from the youngest of us to most of us it is very near to many only a few brief years remain and for the sake of those few and uncertain years shall we push off this present trouble upon our children who have to stay here a little longer there is nothing that can so sweeten the bitter cup of mortality when we shall be called to drink it nothing that can so cheer us in the prospect of parting from all we love nothing that can send such a blessed light on before us into the dark valley which we must enter as the consciousness of fidelity to man and to god and now in these times of great trouble which have come upon us we have a peculiar and special opportunity of testifying our fidelity and of enjoying a full experience of its power to support us we may gather from this trouble a sweetness that shall take away from all suffering its bitterness we may kindle that light in our bosoms which shall make death come to us as a radiant angel four months after the above was uttered on the twenty eighth of april eighteen sixty one after the attack on fort sumter and the whole north had burst into a flame people of all denominations flocked to dr furness's church as to that church which had shown that it was founded on a rock and none can ever forget the long-drawn breath with which the sermon began the long agony is over it was the te deum of a lifetime dr furness's words and counsels were not wanting throughout the war and his sermons were constantly printed in the daily press and in separate pamphlet form and since its close he has continued his absorbing study of the historical accounts of jesus dr furness was born in boston in april eighteen o two and graduated at harvard in eighteen twenty and five years later became the minister of the first congregational unitarian christians in this city and is consequently the senior clergyman there on the score of length of pastorate happy is the man and enviable the gospel minister who looking back upon his course in the great anti-slavery contest can recall as the chief charge brought against him that of being overzealous that he spoke too often and said too much in favor of the slave 
there are but few men and still fewer ministers who have a right to take comfort from such recollections and yet it is to this small class that the cause is most indebted under god for its triumph and the country for its deliverance from slavery end of section eleven